Turn with me to Colossians. We're not going to be returning to our John series quite yet. I wanted to, uh, as I do occasionally, uh, when we're having a baptism, I will uh, break from the normal course of things and we'll look at a, one of the many passages of Scripture that deals with this wonderful covenant sign and seal. And Colossians 2 is one of those, as uh, the theologians call it, a, a uh, locus classicus. That is, it's a classical passage in the Bible on the doctrine of baptism because the way it ties the whole entire organic whole of the Bible together. So Colossians chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures always. Let's pray to our great God again. We love you, we thank you, and we pray to you, our great God. We ask you here to enliven our minds, that your spirit might enlighten us, as we look at this wonderful little passage that brings so much glory to our Savior. May you re renew our minds. They were reminded once again of what we need, our great need, and how it's pictured in baptism and how it's accomplished by the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ Jesus. Do all this for us. Cause us to see Christ. Help us to look away from ourselves and see your covenant faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. As with uh, some of you, perhaps many of you in this room, I grew up in a theological tradition where baptism was about what I did, 
I believed. Therefore, I should be baptized. And if I was faithful to God, if I obeyed God, I would be baptized. It was important for me to obey God in baptism. The more I studied the scriptures through my education as a Baptist in two different seminaries, Baptist, as I read the Bible more, as I studied, I began to notice that passages like Genesis 17 and Colossians 2 and many, many in between were really about God. The emphasis was on him and what he did. I don't know if you noticed how many times in Genesis 17, God said, I, I will make a covenant with you. I will do this. And if we'd read on, we would have seen any more, even more eyes coming from God. Paul says in Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Notice the stress there. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It's about God and, and two gifts that God gives, faith and baptism. It should be pretty evident to us by reading a passage like that, by reading that brief Colossians passage, particularly verses 11 and 12, that baptism is pretty important. It's not just something that comes after the fact. It's something that's primary. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. But it's not about me. It's something that happens to me. It's something that's done to me at whatever point in time. Whether as a new believer, as an adult, and you've never been baptized before. Or as an infant in a covenant household. It's about what takes place. I want to read you that quote. It's printed, but I, I've learned a long time ago that not everyone reads what's printed. Warfield's wonderful quote there. Every time we baptize an infant, we bear witness that salvation is from God. That we cannot do any good thing to receive it. That we receive it from his hands as a sheer gift of his grace. And that we all enter the kingdom of heaven, therefore, as little children who cannot do, but are done for. There's no more perfect sign of that than baptism. I won't wait till the baptismal font to say this, as I often do. But if I were to stand there in a little bit and say, Theo Griffith, come on down. He couldn't. Because he couldn't, he wouldn't. You see how man-centered that is? Not. 
On the other hand, if you believe that baptism is for something that you participate in, then you make salvation synergistic. It's a, it's a sign that shows cooperation. I walked an aisle, I believed, I prayed, I, therefore I will be baptized. And so all of a sudden there's cooperation taking place. And folks, if the Bible's clear on anything, salvation is a sovereign gift of God for dead people who cannot do but must be done for. And nothing symbolizes that better than the baptism of our covenant children in their infancy. We're reminded over and over when we see a baptism like this, God has to do this. This is God having to do this. This is about God's covenant, not us, not our ability. This passage is about that in Colossians. Paul, writing to a Gentile church at Colossae, about the importance of circumcision. Now, if that, doesn't, if that doesn't rock your boat a little bit as you read it, then you've not read it. You've just skimmed over it. You've just looked at the words. But if you've read that passage and you say, who's this written to? It's written to the church at Colossae. Where was Colossians? Colossae. Well, it was out in Gentile land. And he says, concerning Christ and the fullness of deity dwelling in him bodily, in him also you were circumcised. What? Now, every good Gentile at that point would have said, oh no, that's the Judaizing heresy. That's what Judaizers said. You've got to believe in Jesus, but you also got to be circumcised. So the Colossians would have been saying, well, wait a minute. Paul, have you gone? Have you, have you, have you gone to the dark side? Have you joined the very people that you criticize in the book of Galatians, the Judaizers? Is that what you're doing here, Paul? And Paul helps them understand circumcision was not, not first and foremost about the external sign made with hands but in Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and then he calls it the circumcision of Christ and then he says how do you receive this circumcision of Christ in baptism so with that little preface let's look at these three points the first is this Circumcision of the heart is the great need of sinners. That's verse 11. Circumcision of the heart is the great need of sinners. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The old heart has to be taken and a new heart has to be put in. The old heart of stone has to be circumcised. It has to be cut out. And with that replacement, that wonderful pulsing heart of faith and repentance. Love for Christ. In Genesis 12 through 15, Abraham believed, we're told. 
In Genesis 17, God commanded circumcision as the sign of the covenant community, the initiatory rite. And by the way, if, if, if you didn't submit to that baptism, either as the infant of eight days or the believer who hasn't been circumcised, then you are not part of the, com- the company. You're out. You're put out. Circumcision placed the party. Believer in the case of Abraham. Covenant child as in the case of Ishmael and all the successive sons in the visible body of God's people in the Old Testament. We just rehearsed in the Sunday school lesson by an interesting providence of God. Kurt Schmidt's away and he asked me to do Sunday school. So said, just do whatever you're doing in the new members class. Well, this was what I was doing in the new members class. So those of you who are in Sunday school already know that you were expecting this. Only we're looking at it from this passage, not from all those select passages. But here we are back again. Reminded that the circumcision of the old covenant of which Paul speaks here put them into the visible body of Christ. By cutting away the foreskin of the male party, the message was sent that they were different, they were set apart. But then that raises a question, doesn't it? Because there are some ecclesiastical traditions that teach that when these baptismal waters are applied, there is a seed of justification, repentance, and regeneration issued into the person receiving the baptismal waters. The reformers had none of that from Geneva to Scotland and forward. None of that in our Dutch tradition. That only took root in the Lutheran tradition, where they stayed way too close to the Roman tradition. Properly speaking, what takes place at this baptismal font is that the child is made a member of the church, where he will receive the nurture and admonition, the training of the Lord and his people. And he is pointed, pointed, and pointed over and over and over again. It's like those incessant road signs pointing us to what's ahead, what we must do, what we must prepare for. And this is a reminder. Every time you and I see that water right there, we're reminded that as our, our our larger catechism says, we're to improve upon our baptism. In other words, we're to consider Have we experienced the washing of regeneration that that water symbolizes? Have we experienced the pardon and forgiveness of sin that that washing of that water pictures? Have we experienced that union with Christ that that water symbolizes? And so we ask ourselves those questions. To recognize if indeed the sign has become real in our hearts. Or is it still just external? Is it still just symbolically setting us apart, but we haven't realized what we need in our very hearts? Circumcision of the heart.
is the great need of the church. That was true in the Old Covenant as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, God says to the people, circumcise yourselves. And then in chapter 30, he says, I will circumcise your heart for you. And the whole story between Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30 is, it's not something you can do for yourselves. This is something I have to do for you. And yet, they were to receive circumcision in the flesh at eight days. It pointed them to their great need of a circumcised heart. Where the old filthy stuff is cut away and that leaves room for the, for the new heart to grow in holiness and righteousness. That's the need of the heart. The realization of the thing signified comes only in and through Christ. Did you see that? In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Notice it begins with in him you were circumcised with this spiritual circumcision, this circumcision of the heart. And then he closes the thought with by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ, we're told, in that great prophecy of Isaiah 50, was circumcised. That is, he was cut off. That's the circumcision imagery. He was cut off for us because we can't do it ourselves. So every time we see circumcision mentioned, and here Paul talking about circumcision, circumcision without hands, circumcision of the heart. It's a reminder that we can't circumcise our hearts. We can't clean ourselves up. But Christ did it for us. In him, the circumcision of Christ, our hearts are cleaned up through what he did for us. The church, when they read this passage, the circumcision of Christ would have thought of his great sacrifice for the people. When we see this baptism in a few moments and we see the waters applied, it's a reminder to us of the circumcision, the cutting off of Christ so that we might have our, our sinful hearts cut off and new hearts of flesh restored that we might live lives that honor our great God. That's our great need. Then he moves immediately to say that circumcision of the heart is signified in baptism. Do you see that? It's so smooth. It's so fluid. Paul doesn't stop to explain himself. Again, you read this passage and you don't realize that he's talking to Gentiles about circumcision and to some ears today, there's a particular theological tradition. That sounds very queer, very weird, very strange to talk to Gentiles about circumcision. Well, that's an Old Testament thing. And Paul says it's not. It's a God thing. Because that physical circumcision always and only pointed to a need for the heart to be circumcised. Something that we couldn't do ourselves and then Paul 
does something else that shouldn't be missed. He moves directly to equating circumcision with baptism. The circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul explains this circumcision. He's linking circumcision with baptism. That's unmistakable and it's clear. Don't confuse it. Don't explain it away. Paul didn't even think it necessary to enter into any sort of explanation here. He just thought it very natural that people would understand this. That circumcision and baptism are the old covenant sign and the new covenant sign. And they're the sign of the same thing. And by the way, the church in toto has always agreed on that except for some fringes. Always. Even if you disagree with who the proper subjects of baptism are, everyone agrees that in the Old Covenant, the sign of the covenant, the sign of the church was circumcision. In the New Covenant, it's the baptism. They both point us to the need to have our hearts cleansed, to have our sins washed away, to have the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit upon us. Baptism, we know, is a sign of discipleship. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then what's the first thing he says after make disciples? What's the first step in making disciples? Baptizing them. The grammar on this passage is unmistakable, y'all. Don't, don't try to separate disciple making and baptism. They go together. So when we go to the mission field, when we go to a part of the country without a church, we go, we make disciples. And where there are believers, we baptize their children as part of the disciple-making process. They're brought into the church, which, as our confession says, properly based on the scriptures, which is the ordinary place where salvation comes to people. Wouldn't you want your children part of the, of the institution, the only institution on this earth that is the ordinary place where salvation comes? The answer to a reasonable person is yes. That's where I want my children. I want them in the place where salvation ordinarily is dispensed by God. And that's his church. Everyone in this room today who's been baptized has been set apart to a life of discipleship by God. And a first step is to believe what the sign of baptism represents for whatever is not of faith is sin. So everyone here who's been baptized, we have a host of covenant children in this room this morning who have been baptized. And I want to remind you, children, those waters are screaming at you right now saying, 
You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who can wash away your sins. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who came down from heaven and took your sins and who is raised and is right now praying for you that you would believe in him. You need to look at that water and realize that that water represents your hope, your salvation, if you believe in Jesus Christ. Now I want to say something else to you covenant children, and particularly to you parents. We need to be reminded of Peter's warning to us in 2 Peter when he, when he equates the flood with baptism. The flood was not good news to everyone. Baptism is not good news to everyone. If you don't believe, then it's a curse. Listen, y'all. Listen to me. Isaiah. Isaiah says that God's word never comes down and returns to him void. Never, ever. It always accomplishes what it's meant to accomplish. That sign right there, just like this sign on, that's, that's put on that table once a month and distributed to you. The sign of baptism, the sign of the Lord's Supper. Those are signs. And if they are not received by faith, they curse you. They're either a blessing or a curse. That's the reason we can't just glibly dismiss baptism. It can't just be a simple add-on to our having believed. It can't be an add-on to a worship service. It needs to be understood that this is a solemn rite, R-I-T-E. It's not something to be observed flippantly. It's not something to be administered flippantly. It's something that is either going to be a blessing or it's going to end up being a curse. And what's the determinative factor here? Well, ultimately, the determinative factor is God's design. What has God designed this to be for you? And we don't know the infinite mind of God, but we know this. What he has said is, for all who believe, there is salvation. And so if you'll believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners, and that he washes away your sins, and he cleanses you from all unrighteousness... You shall be saved. That's the promise of the Bible. That's the promise of this covenant sign. Here's the other promise that goes with it, though, I have to sadly say. If you do not obey, if you do not believe, the wrath of God abides upon you. John chapter 3. So which is it? We all have to ponder that. Has our baptism... become real in our hearts? Has all that that water symbolizes become real in here? Or is it still just water in a bowl? Finally, and I already touched on this, circumcision of the heart is realized through faith. Just as in the Old Covenant, circumcision didn't accomplish positive saving 
work in the life of Ishmael or Esau. But it did in others. And it produced faith in others. Many others. And it does every day produce faith. As God takes it and he uses it as a means of grace to remind us that we need that. And how do we get access to what it symbolizes through faith? Again, whatever is not of faith is sin. Every time we baptize an infant, we bear witness that salvation is from God, that we cannot do any good thing to receive it. Remember? Faith is a gift of God. Repentance is a gift of God. We cannot do any good thing to receive it. That we receive it from his hands as a sheer gift of his grace. And that we all enter the kingdom of heaven, therefore, as little children who cannot do, but are done for. Every Christian should shout amen to that. Aren't you glad that God does for us? That he treats us like little infants who cannot do for themselves and he does everything we need. If you have a problem with that, you're a selfish, autonomous, independent, self-centered being. And you need to repent and believe in Jesus for salvation. After all, that salvation is, that's what salvation is about. It's saving us from ourselves and from a holy, holy, holy God. When we baptize one of our covenant children, as we're going to do Theo, Theodore Sinclair Griffith, in just a few moments, we're setting him apart as a member of this church. We're acknowledging his need for a savior. We're engaging him to live according to the dictates of God's word by faith. We're, we're going to, in every opportunity henceforth, we're going to call him to improve his baptism throughout his life. And how do you improve your baptism? By believing God to be the only one who can cleanse you from sin, save you from this life, and for the life to come by loving Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Our confession says that this is an engagement to Christ. Let me remind you, we have someone who's engaged to be married right now. She's seated right up there. And she is not married to Tyler yet. She's only engaged. Today, Theo will be engaged to Christ. And we're looking forward to the day when Christ works in his heart and he trusts him. And that union is consummated. And that consummation will be through faith in Christ. That's what we're looking forward to from this day to that day. And to the end of this age. So we're calling each one of us to consider has our heart been circumcised has it been cleaned up has the old filthy stuff been cut off if so it's through the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism and notice 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The power that it took to raise Christ from the dead is what it takes to raise your wicked heart and my wicked heart from a status of dead and trespasses and sin, being a child of wrath. That's remarkable, isn't it? If you ever wonder how dead am I and am my sins, you read that passage again. You're so dead that it takes the resurrection power of God to t- take you out of your sins and put you in Christ Jesus unto salvation. Now that's good news. Because without God doing that, a dead man's dead. And all he's going to do is stink and rot and become dust eventually. But in Christ, we're alive and vibrant forever and ever and ever. That's good news. That's the gospel. That's why we say this is the gospel in picture form right there in those waters. Father, we thank you and ask now that you bless this time. Thank you for this. This, this passage is so wonderful. Just as Jesus showed us the continuity from Passover meal to the new covenant meal and their they're one and the same, picturing the both thing, the, 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 picturing the same thing. So circumcision and baptism right here together, showing us that continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. Your people and their children for generations. We love you and we thank you. And ask now that you would be pleased to hear us. In this prayer, in Jesus' name, amen.